Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition, who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. I'm Judy Wilkerson, and I really hope that you're enjoying the episodes. Uh, thanks for joining us today if you're listening. Um, I'm really excited to launch our guest, Adam Lawrence, today. So just a bit of background about the podcast first. So I'm Judy Wilkerson, and I own Wilkerson Accounting Solutions. Um, I decided to set up the podcast because I work in acquisitions and exit strategy planning with my business, Wilkerson Accounting Solutions. And I'm on a mission to save the wealth of failed acquisitions because I've seen historically there's been quite a lot of uh, poor information um, in businesses in general. So we've launched this podcast to give lots of exciting tips and guidance to our listeners. And Adam has a lot of experience. So he started the entrepreneurial journey in 2011 He's worked with over 550 UK properties in his property portfolio. He's had dozens of, um, bought dozens of acquisitions, asset backed and trading businesses, um, and has actually um, built a JV business that's probably worth close to 50 million assets and seven figure EBITDA. So I'm sure he's going to be able to give us lots of interesting stories about his journey. So thanks for coming on, Adam. Thanks for having me, Julie. And um, first of all, maybe we could hand over to you to give a bit of background about you. Sure thing, yeah. So um, I've had a few years in corporate, which was mostly focused in financial services, so wealth management. I worked for a couple of years abroad in Geneva in Switzerland in a couple of boutique firms, which was good fun. I knew nothing at all about money when I went out there and learned an awful lot while I was, and I learned a lot about people as well. And it was absolutely fascinating. And I also worked inside one of the UK's top 10 lenders um, as a cross-business consultant. So that was good for understanding how something that's become very important to me, borrowing money from the bank, would would work. Um, Decided to get into property and throw a lot of my energy into that after the great old crash of 2008 because it made sense. Property stacked up, interest rates had gone down. We weren't building enough houses. You know the story in the UK. Um, We haven't made any decent inroads into that in the 12 years since then. Um, And then got into, you know, as as the property portfolio grew, the management became quite a drain on time. And I thought it would be a good idea to investigate how the professionals do it. So letting agents. um, And I went on some training to become a better letting agent, um, but also to discover really for myself whether I should try and start a letting agency or whether I should try and buy one. Um, and that was the, the sort of that, that, that point in about 2015, 2016, that was, was really the, the moment when I thought, right, okay, I'll have to start expanding sort of horizontally by filling in a few gaps in the business and having a proper official management structure and stuff like that so it was really clear to me from doing that that buying one was a much better idea than starting one from scratch um and i put some feelers out and i actually ended up 
buying two and then starting one anyway <laughs> because I realized there was a gap between what letting agents do day to day and what I needed from an internal uh, letting agency asset management arm to the group, I suppose, if you like. Oh, well, that's interesting then. So um, you've obviously got a lot of experience in the property and business world. So I think it'd be really great to share some experiences of sort of, you know, you've touched on sort of why you maybe did your first acquisition, but it'd be really great to hear some success stories of some of these acquisitions, but also maybe one where it didn't go so well. So in terms of the acquisitions that you've done, are some of these still in the group today? Oh, yeah, the vast majority are. Uh, there's a few disposals, but the vast majority are. So they either are operating in one particular individual area in the UK, so they're kind of a little bit geographically constrained because letting agents do tend to be like that. Uh, but the ones, I've, as you say, I have divested from a couple as well. So I've done everything from sort of buying businesses for a pound um, up to buying half of a business, up to all all sorts of things that a lot of people would consider to be a bit nuts, to be honest, Julie. Um, and if I if I start, I'll, I'll start with a good one, and then we can go on to a to a more difficult one, if you like. Yeah. yeah. So I bought into one of the first ones I bought into. Uh, so I think we completed this in 2016. Was half of an agency with uh, a property professional that I had already known for some time. We had we passed the whole sort of sniff test. We knew, liked, and trusted each other. Our values were similar, all the things that are, that are key. But also he understood the strategic importance of the letting agency to his portfolio. And he'd done, like, like a lot of people in property who've been around for quite a long time, he'd bought a lot of units before 2008 when the funding side of things was very different. And then he ultimately... Um, stopped growing his portfolio at that point, restructured because there'd been so much, you know, easy money in inverted commas thrown at people in, in sort of 2004, 5, 6, 7 um, and hadn't really kicked the investment business on since then. Whereas I'd, I'd cut my teeth after the crash. So I'd had to use different and uh, more creative tactics in order to grow my portfolio that, that still work in today's environment, although COVID has obviously changed quite a lot. So um, I, I knew he was the right sort of person to, to work with. Um, his business partner wanted to sell out and he didn't really. So that made it quite a difficult sell for anybody. But he did agree to try and sell the whole thing on the open market, but he didn't get any biters. They didn't get any biters. So half the shares were available which I was able to buy a, a really good discount to value on that basis. So it wasn't a big investment on the way in. Um, business was round about breaking even. Um, and it still doesn't, it's not exciting necessarily on its own, although it does make a bit of profit these days. Um, but what it is able to do is provide a big source of leads for property acquisitions and developments we might be looking at in the area. And it's also able to manage everything and has good financial reporting structures in place. So it sits in the group really nicely as a, uh, a necessary evil, I suppose, if you like. But in terms of the equity it's been able to inject on the property side of the business, it's been fantastic. They're great people, good to work with. I do get a kick out of providing employment, although I'd never want to oversee 
500 people or so. People who, who run these very big organisations, I marvel at them because I just would find it, as soon as I've lost track of, you know, a few details about people, um, and I didn't, if I didn't know everyone who worked for me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel quite so, uh, quite so good as I do about it, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So if you... Because when we work with people on the acquisitions, people are doing it for different reasons. So they're either trying to grow in the same industry, so take take away competitors, or maybe diversify. Or like it sounds like what you've done is if this letting agency is giving you this sort of source of funding, I suppose an option to that would be if you didn't have it, you might be using brokers or something, which then as the leads came in, it'd be a lot more expensive. So if you've kind of launched into an acquisition that maybe is giving a cost-effective route to get you know a different um a different strategy up and running but even though that might not be making as much money as others in the group it might be in a way like reducing costs somewhere else in the group because you'd be having extended costs somewhere else if it wasn't within the you know within your structure would you agree with that i, I would think i think that's spot on julie i think it, it's definitely that it's also peace of mind for an industry that is now you know, as you know, heavily tilted towards compliance, but also the, the boxes are being ticked on the compliance side of things, which is absolutely key. So there's an element of the control piece and there's very much an element of the, it slots in on the, the cost-cutting side of things as well and on the, yeah, the opportunities that it can throw up, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, because I think... You know, with all these, I mean, we know we talk about it, all these no money down deals, you know, everyone's going to live this entrepreneurial journey. I think a lot of people always think the acquisition has to be, oh my God, it has to make X amount of money and it has to make X amount of profit. I don't always think people are thinking longer term, longer term strategies. Like actually, although it might not make me X amount of profit, you know, as long as it's, you know, it can break even, it can generate its cash flow that it needs. Actually, what does it bring you value-wise in other areas that, you know, from from looking at it from a group perspective, which is why we always talk about the group forecasting and the group reporting, because costs must be coming down somewhere if you've acquired something that's doing something that, you know, you'd be using a third party to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So that's the good one. (laughs) <laughs> that's going well <laughs> so what about one that maybe didn't go so well for you sure so i can tell you about and again it was i'd say probably about two-thirds of the acquisitions i've been involved in have been estate and letting agencies or one or the other or both um so this was uh, at the time just an estate agency it didn't have a lettings arm it had a, a good thrusting person at the front of it who was a a good ambassador, um, but someone who, who didn't really turn out to be a good or fair business partner, ultimately. So the, the cautionary tale here really is you really need to consider these things like you would consider getting married, not like you would consider going out on a date, you know, because you're going to be so close to that person potentially for quite a long time when you're looking at going into a joint venture you know, you really need to make sure that your, your values are the same and that your time and effort is going to be fairly considered and rewarded. Um, and, and from my perspective, I guess there was a, a lot of financial support that went in, more than was agreed in the first place. It was a very cheap buy-in price for what it was, but that's because it needed funds injecting into it ultimately, Julie. Mm. And where we ended up, well, actually, COVID brought things to a bit of a natural end because at the very beginning of COVID, everyone was very bearish on property. And because this was still primarily 
a, a sales-driven estate agency, obviously the market was closed. And before all the government stimulus was announced, we were simply looking down the barrel of a, a big black hole over the next, and of course we didn't know for how long. Now, my personal thought, I try not to panic in any situation because if you do, you just can't survive in business, can you, ultimately? Um, but what I thought was I've got so much exposure already on the asset pricing side of things. What I really don't need as a chain around my neck at this point is a sales-driven estate agency that might need more and more money pumping into it in order to survive the pandemic. And what actually ended up happening, of course, is so I did, did sell out relatively quickly. It still took about three months to do the deal, but obviously that quite quick in acquisition and disposal terms. Um, what we knew was a favourable price, but with a runoff, so there wasn't too much money up front involved. Um, and actually the runoff worked out well because we were taking a percentage of sales for the next 18 months, which ended up being a spectacular 18 months for that agency and nearly any other agency around the country. So we dumped the shares in the wrong thing at the wrong time, probably. Um, but having said that, it was still the right thing to do in the longer run because ultimately the business partners' values and, and goals and mindset in general were just nowhere near aligned with mine. And it was a, an amicable enough divorce, if you like, without too many negative consequences. And I hold no no ill feeling against that person to this day. They're just not the same as me. And, you know, we're in most in a partnership, I think you always want to be better off together, right? And in this partnership, we were better off apart. So nothing wrong with that. Um, you can't work with everybody and no one can. And by no means do I absolve myself of any blame and responsibility. And I'm not saying I'm the easiest person in the world to work with either, Julie. So just one of those things that didn't get picked up on the way in. Um, by by anybody involved, and we got out with a, a bloody nose and a, a lot of time. It wasn't money wise; we lost a bit of money. Nothing really material, to be honest with you. But if you costed the time and effort that went in, it'd be really, really significant, and that that's what hurts. Because obviously, time is the one thing you can't get back, mm. and we could have been working on much better or lower risk or longer term or whatever. Could have put the focus somewhere else. And that's the that's the thing. If I had a regret, that would be it, realistically. And when you sold it to like these other agencies then, you know, that had a good 18 months afterwards, I mean, what made what do you think made your sort of infrastructure successful in their business that maybe you didn't do you think they had a bit bigger infrastructure in general that they could do to the piggyback off the back of what you had already done or um, I think what they were able to do, they took a very different approach to the way that they funded the business. But also, um, we had put a lot of stuff in place. Because remember the timing of the pandemic, we'd done a lot of work in 2019 that was going to bear fruit going forward. And 2019 was actually a pretty limp year for a state agency in general. Most most results will tell you that people struggled a bit in 2019. So some of those shoots were always going to bear some fruit in a good market. It's just that I didn't think it would be a good market. It ended up being an amazing market for, for agents. So there was definitely someone got to have the benefit of the systems and the processes and the structure and things that we put in place. But also I think if, if two people aren't getting on as well as they could do, then ultimately 
I think that new blood really reinvigorated the remaining partner as well. He redoubled his efforts and he was able, and ultimately he is the brand, he is the face of the business, um, and he was able to really push forward um, as others struggled. So I don't doubt there's some things they definitely did better than we did, but in terms of putting my finger on it, I would say it was more the market plus a reinvigorated, untalented individual putting 110% back into something that I think he probably started to fall out of love with when we were working together, which would have been a shame for, for everybody involved, ultimately. Yeah. And it's interesting that you've done a lot of JVs. I mean, a lot of people in the acquisitions that we spoke to, a lot of them are looking to partner with people. I suppose sometimes people get a bit, you know, because there's all these talk about how many acquisitions are going on, people like it all for themselves, you know. They like the idea of buying something and then growing it, which, you know, fair enough, on your own, yeah, you do well. But I do sometimes think people don't look to have enough partners on their side when they're doing deals. What did you know you was going to go down the JV route? Do you think it's easier? Oh, great, great couple of questions. So did I know? Yeah, I think so, because I love working with people. And I love people. And being in an asset focused industry in general, then there aren't that many people around. And certainly when you start off in property and for years and years, potentially, you are a bit on your own. So that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't and didn't suit me at all. And I felt I needed, you know, I JV'd for expertise. I JV'd for, for uh, people who were bringing equity investments. I JV'd for all sorts of reasons. Um, whereas these days I'm much more JV'ing with people who are pretty passive business partners. Not all of them. Some of them are extremely active in operating a group that we want to grow to a, you know, a really significant level. But the, the newer JVs have tended to be more passive style arrangements for people. So that and do I think? I mean, I, I'm biased, aren't I? I love, I've, I've done load vast vast majority of what I've done is in JVs. So I think the more you do, the more of a headache you create for yourself because you've got to completely be of the opposite mindset of what you've said. So I look at the world as far as look, it's 15 trillion nearly of residential real estate in the UK. So I don't even need to contemplate owning 0.001% of that to have an absolutely gigantic portfolio. Um, so there's plenty to go around is the point that I'm kind of making, I suppose. Um, and I've always, it's always worked for me over the years. If I don't worry too much about the slice of the pie that I've got, but I just focus on 100% on growing the pie and work with people who are, of the same mindset and want to grow the pie. And, and, and you know, you do you do have to consider conflict of interest and it, it, it's difficult to be perfect and all that stuff. But I just make sure I don't put my own needs before the business. It sounds dead simple to say that, I know, but it's more of a philosophy that I try and live by and say, okay, what are we trying to achieve in this particular business, right? How do we go about it? Have we got complementary businesses that can help each other? Ideally, we have, right? And so that's, that's useful because... A bit like you mentioned earlier, you know, if you've got a way of keeping costs down that can benefit other business partners or whatever, why not share it? Transparency is so important in these situations. You've got to be willing to lay out that you're not trying to feather your own nest by doing this stuff. But every, I'll give you an example of a, uh, it's actually a new company we've started, not an acquisition, but we've agreed that we will do things for ourselves at cost plus 10%. And we've got a massive marketplace within the partners to do what to deliver what we're delivering in that business. And everybody knows what the costs are and everyone knows what 10% margin is. 
And you look at it as a venture has got to be commercially viable on its own. It can't just be a drain on the resources or whatever. Otherwise, you'll always, I think you'll always make mistakes in that part of the, the business if you do that. But as long as it is commercially viable, it at least ticks over and it provides other commercial benefits to you, then it works. So I think it, I wouldn't understate how hard it is to try and get it right in partnerships because I think it's a, it is a tough, old, a tough old thing to do. But again, sort of clarity of what do you expect of me? What do I expect of you? What am I going to be able to do? Because if you're going to give me an operational role, I'm just going to say it's just not feasible, it's not feasible because I don't have capacity for more operational roles. If you're going to give me a strategic role, well, actually, I love thinking through problems, solving problems. I wouldn't say I love telling people what to do, but I'm sure some people would disagree with that. <laughs> um, but I, I can frame it. I can frame it in a way. I can explain it in a way that people can go away and get it done. And it gives me a lot of pleasure to see people come back and say, I've done this. And then we see if it works or not sort of thing, you know? Yeah. I like the fact that you talk about like knowing what each business makes. Um, oh, as we see this, this is a problem so many times where people are paying something from one bank um, and yeah. they're not thinking <laughs> yeah. then like how that impacts the rest of the entity. So really seeing the true margins because, you know, I've seen it on acquisitions when people are buying it and these, you know, these valuations are overstated because maybe the buyer's giving a bit too much away to the people they're trying to buy from. And I saw a couple where they'd added back all the costs. So they'd added back the in, like accountant fees. They'd added back insurance and all this sort of stuff. And it inflated the, the, the price by probably a few hundred grand um, mm. at most. And it's a bit like, well, why would they not buy it at the, I think you should buy businesses, you know, at the commercial, you know, activity that the, that it costs to run that business. And their view was, oh yeah, but the buyer's got all these at their group level, so they won't need the costs. And it's a bit like, well, it's a bit artificial because one, you don't add on like a new firm to a to your accountant, as an example, and not get an additional charge. It might not be as expensive because that's the whole point, isn't it, of having a group is you get like a bit of an economies of scale. It might be not as expensive, but you would have some fee. Like, yeah, 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 but they'll pay that somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't matter because you'd still recharge that cost to that entity because at the end of the day, otherwise, what this one suddenly got no costs in it, so it doesn't cost anything to run that business. And then what happens is when people get multiple groups and they don't then recharge the, the across uh, correctly like I mean we would call it management recharges whatever you know it as um you know they're over inflating certain businesses and probably actually not trading very well in some businesses but they just don't know so totally agree totally agree and you see that you know it, it's it, it on the flip side of that some of the you know smaller end cigar style acquisitions I've been involved in it, it beggars belief to me that people the, the, the funniest comment I ever got was management accounts why why do you want to see them you're not the bank are you um and it's just like i, I don't know what to do with that comment julie do you know what i mean i don't want to offend anybody but i mean what, how do you want me to try and even put a value on this business i don't i don't understand <laughs> just doesn't compute you're not the bank oh no i've heard it as well i've heard it uh, uh, the things i hear is just i, t I always say i'm going to write a book one day because it's hilarious no i've heard it i've heard people go Oh no, we don't we don't pay to have management accounts done. So then we go, oh, but it's okay because you have the bookkeeping, so you can at least at least run a profit and loss and balance sheet. And they just and someone just goes, oh no, well we just post it anywhere and sort it out at the end of the year. 
Yeah, it's a bit like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, how yeah. can, <laughs> and again, you just don't really know what to say because there isn't actually anything to say at that no. point, is there? It's just hilarious. One of my favourites was a lady who told us, well, I, I, everything I spend goes through the business. Don't spend anything apart from on, through the business account. And then my accountant just sees what they can allocate at the end of the year. I was like, <laughs> wow, okay, that's one, one, one way of doing it, I suppose. Yeah, I've never heard of that one before, yeah. but okay. Oh, it is, it is funny. But even in big businesses, though, I mean, I've worked in big corporates where, you know, we've done some deep dive analysis of management accounts and, you know, they'll have a small area of trade in one business that, you know, they might be 20, 30, you know, or 50 mil, but they've one mil's one trade and everything's consolidated into like a sales number. So there's only one cost center of sales, but actually within that sales number, there's maybe four or five different routes to market. And like we then, mm-hmm. I call this cost to serve. So you pull out each you basically pull out your P&L into each of your channels, each of your route to markets to then work out. So you come to the same net profit because obviously you've made what you've made, but you're splitting that profit out between the channels. And I remember um, this exhibitions, I think they did seven and three of them made a loss, but then they didn't know because as a group, they were profitable. But actually they did, you know, when all the costs came in and they split it out, you know, the number of staff that worked on, although as a group, you know, as one entity, they had maybe, they think they had the right number of staff overall. If you actually apportioned the time of the people that were spending on those activities, it wasn't cost effective for what they were making. Yeah. So it's a, a classic, isn't it? When you haven't got the correct information, you can't make the correct decisions it's impossible to make the correct decisions yeah and i remember just like um the the importance of information it there was something as simple as we looked at like if they had sold the exhibition stands at the full price they could have made x and when they looked at what they had sold i think they dropped 150k in a year or something and when it turned out all that had happened was the person selling the stands had just gone back to the same people every year and just renegotiating like cheaper prices it, it was nothing like, it wasn't because they wasn't selling out. It was literally just that. And that person didn't even actually know they were doing that, you know, and, and no one had ever picked up on it. So then instantly, you know, that that probably a 15 minute conversation meant they could add 150 to 200. That, that's full margin then because that's what they could have been making, yeah. you know. And, and then you put in yeah. like your processes and controls to say, well, it's not like they can never give a discount, but, you know, maybe someone senior has to sign it off. <laughs> so, um I've seen I've seen businesses where they've they've you know they've targeted their sales teams on turnover, you know, and they haven't even given them sort of margin, you know, guidelines or anything to work within. And of course, what happens is the salesperson drops the price as much as they to whatever they need to to get the bit of business, whether it's profitable or not, is another another kettle of fish. And that's even in really, some really quite big businesses that I've seen that happening in, yeah. which is obviously just. Yeah, yeah, I've seen 20 mil businesses write the market in on the whiteboard. (laughs) And they're going, well, we think we should be making more money than we are, but they've got like this whiteboard and that's where they write write the market on. And it's just like unbelievable. But I mean, these businesses do well, you know, they're also obviously making them do well, but it's just what can actually happen is, you know, I've seen people put 200% on the bottom line when they implement the right infrastructure of reporting. So anyway, I could go on all day about (laughs) that. <laughs> you see people sell a business for a million quid and then in three years' time it's worth five million or ten million, you know, with if someone takes it on and does the right things to it. And that I know that happens at the hundred million level and beyond, you know, that's just the way but sometimes it is the that group infrastructure you were talking about. Sometimes it's just it really is as simple as someone what's the marketing plan? 
nothing. I think that's what I hear more than more than anything, to be honest with you. So yeah. I totally get it. I agree. So then obviously, you know, you've done, well, you've obviously done a lot in business and property. So, you know, just I suppose a bit personally, what's your, have you got an end game to what you're doing? Yeah, I get asked that a bit really. And I, I really don't, apart from making sure that it is organised and tidy enough to pass on. Um, you know, I've still got relatively young children at the moment. So I've got lots of focus on on them and their schooling and all the rest of it. Um, and that's what sort of keeps me keeps me busy outside of work. Um, apart from anything else, that's, that's absolutely my why. Um, so for the moment, I think while I still get out of bed and enjoy it in the morning, I've considered that uh, that's good enough for me. Really, I'm not I'm not really driven by the numbers. I, I have a handle on the numbers, obviously, but I'm not really driven by a number or a number of properties or anything like that, really. Um, I just sort of know those figures because I know that's what people want to know. But it's not really about not enough being enough because I've got a fair few people who I partner with, as you said, and the, I, I like to try and put as much in as possible to grow the pie. And I'm enjoying the ride, really, Julie, at the moment. So as long as that goes on, um, I, I'm going to I'm gonna let that go on. I do, I do think in the future, at some point, I'd like to spend some months a year outside of the UK, primarily primarily the winter months just because i get dead miserable you know when, as soon as the clocks go back i'm a right misery gut still about march time so um probably probably need to address that at some point with four months abroad a year when the kids are grown up maybe but we have to see what happens and what life throws at you don't you realistically so i'm trying to surround myself now with people who are better than me faster than me younger than me and uh, all the rest of it just so that that can that everything can continue even without me really driving it forward. Hmm. And I suppose, what would you say? I mean, if you didn't do any new acquisitions, so you just had the companies that you had now, you know, do you think if you stepped away, it would run without you at the minute? Today, yeah. no, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't, no. But I haven't I haven't really um, set it up to be like that. It wouldn't take too much effort to do that. And that's sort of probably, you know, one of the major projects we've got on this year is so that, anybody can understand all of the financial reporting that we, we're doing. Um, so we're working towards that. But we, we should soon be at a stage where driving forward would be what we would lose out on the most rather than the whole thing. I mean, it wouldn't fall apart, don't get me wrong, and I'm sure the people that I would leave behind would would be able to step up to the plate, but it's not ready for me to go on a three-month round-the-world cruise yet because it's not really the beast that I've created yet, but I do I do need to. And uh, that is certainly the next couple of years worth of time and effort and, and thought going into that side of things. Yeah. Well, sounds great. Well, we're coming towards the end of the show. So, I mean, what's next on your agenda? Are you looking for anything in particular? Yeah. So, I mean, I like asset-backed businesses. Um, I like buildings that can benefit from, I mean, now energy efficiency is such a big thing and sustainable sustainable improvements, things like solar power and things like that. So um, not just looking in the property sector, looking for anything that's got a, a, I would say, a business with either a manager in place or a business that a manager could be slotted in relatively easily. Um, I've seen a couple of things recently where similar sort of thing that you were talking about with big turnover, where there isn't any sort of board structure or even the end, you know, people are selling a business, but they're the, they're the MD or they're the co-MD, and there's 
probably a year's worth of work to do if you wanted to get into that. And they scare me off a bit, to be honest, because I know the level of effort I would need. You know, they're not big enough to just force an army of consultants in to do it for you. You'd have to get involved and get two or three of my talented people to get involved in that. And then I suppose going back to my story, the one that didn't go so well, it's once bitten twice shy with ones that don't go so well because it's the time that you burn and the, the opportunities that you you don't even know you missed. So scanning the market quite a lot and looking for um, things that also have got funny financial structures after COVID with recovery loans and sea bills and this and that and the other um, things that we can maybe restructure, uh, things that are distressed or stressed as well, because really that's the way that we built the property side of things. So I guess that's, uh, if we had a specialism, stressed and distressed would be it. Okay. So if anyone's watching, you know, who watches the podcast and thinks they might ask something for you, where's the best place for them to find you? Uh, so Adam G. Lawrence on LinkedIn, absolutely the best place to find me. So drop me a message. I write uh, an article about the economy and property every Sunday that I publish on my LinkedIn page. If anybody's interested in that, um, it's free to air. It'll bore the hell out of you. It's 3,000 plus words long, but I try and stay on top of the major things that are happening in the in the world and this this week i'm going to be talking about energy because there's quite a lot of that in the news thanks to various protesters here and there so got a few things to say on that front oh cool well thanks so much for coming on adam it's been really great to hear your story thanks for having me that's all right no you're welcome and thanks to all our listeners i hope you enjoy in the show if you have anything um any topics you want to cover just drop me a message but if you love our episodes leave us a rating on review on apple so that other listeners can find us and we'll see you again soon so once again thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast I hope you found it useful. If you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast, then please share it with them. Either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a Facebook group or other social media channel. Don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon. 